needs theology. You ever think of that? I can tell you, if you've opened your Bibles and read for more than 30 seconds, you might want to hold on to your chairs for what I'm going to say next because it's going to be a little provocative. Then you are a theologian. I didn't say you were a professional theologian. I didn't say you were a well-studied theologian. I didn't even say you were using proper grammatical interpretation of the scriptures. I said, if you opened your Bible and read for more than 30 seconds, you are a theologian. All the theology we have about God is derived from the B-I-B-L-E. It's from the Bible, okay? We're going to be studying theology for the next umpteen weeks here at Gradient. Now, if that bums you out, let me read you a couple quick quotes and then just share my heart for two seconds with you guys. This is from a really fantastic book called The Great Doctrines of the Bible by William Evans. I would highly recommend you pick it up. I'm talking excellent as in read through as well as have for a reference in your own personal library. When I recommend a book, it means at least two things. I have A, absolutely read all or most of it, and B, I thought it was really something worth recommending to my friends. It says, it does not seem to have occurred to any of the writers of either the Old or the New Testaments to attempt to prove or to argue for the existence of God. Everywhere and at all times, it is a fact taken for granted. A God capable of proof would be no God at all. He is the self-existent one, according to Exodus 3.14, and the source of all life, according to the words of John in his gospel, John 5.26. And I agree with both of those statements. The Bible never ever sets out to try and like convince you with epic apologetic evidence for God's existence. You've all read Genesis 1.1. How does it start? Let me teach you about the God. Nope. Let me prove to you that there's a God who created the universe. Nope. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. It's a self-evident fact. Now look, you can believe whatever you want to believe. I believe that that is part of God's gift to men and women. You have a free will. We say it all the time. Pastor Chris and I are in one accord on this. You want to walk out of here? and go home on your navel, go for it. I don't recommend it, but go ahead. You want to go home tonight? You know, pray to the flying spaghetti monster? Go ahead. I don't think he exists. And a God that doesn't exist isn't going to hear your prayers anyway, but you're free to do that if you want. Or you can worship the God who has chosen, I don't know if you've thought about this, but I want you to think on it. You can worship the God who has revealed himself unto lost and fallen mankind. You could choose to worship the God who forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and willingly sacrificed. Have you thought of Jesus' sacrifice lately? We're gonna get to it. It's not tonight's talk, but we're gonna get to it. The fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches the gospel in a very short sentence. Jesus was sinless. The sinlessness of Christ is something all Christians should be able to shake hands, hug on, and agree upon. Amen? 
It's kind of fundamental. And that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to look at really fundamental doctrines, and we're not going to teach them in such a highfalutin way that you walk out of here scratching your head going, well, that guy up there said something tonight. He was bald, and he said something about God. And Pastor Chris is just as bald as me, so one of two bald guys is going to be saying something about God for the next 14 weeks. So I love this quote. I want you guys to really quiet down your hearts for a second. Just really listen to this. Hear these words. While good theology does include rigorous academic debate, it never stops there. Good theologians discuss intellectual questions and concern themselves with academic debate because their chief concern is life. They want to know the truth, not merely so that they might think properly, but so that they might live properly. They engage in theology not merely to amass knowledge, but also to gain wisdom. Good theology, therefore, brings the theoretical, academic, and intellectual aspect of Christian faith into Christian living. In so doing, theology becomes immensely practical, perhaps the most practical endeavor one ever engages in. I agree with Dr. Grenz on that. I think he was spot on. And he went home to be with Jesus over a decade ago, so he knows more about theology now than any of us who are actively studying it here on earth. But I heard Dr. Ron Rhodes say something to me 15 years ago when I was in seminary, and it has rung true to me all throughout my pastoral career. He looked us all in the eyes one day and he said, my brothers, I need to speak to you ever so plainly. And this is a man with a doctorate of theology from Dallas Theological. And we're talking about seven years of study to do the THD. This is a seriously studied, brilliant man, fluent in Greek and Hebrew. And he looked at us and he said, if theology is not devotional to the core, to lead you to the foot of the cross, to fall on your face and confess Christ as your all in all, then stop now and ask Veritas Seminary for a refund because you will turn into an arrogant jerk. That was on day one, day one of Christology, the study of who Jesus is. And I was struck hard with those words. Because I'll be honest, as a younger Christian, I wanted to know more of the Bible than my friends so that I could look really smart in Bible studies and win biblical trivial pursuit games. Ooh, look, I got all five colored pieces. <laughs> I'm smart and you're dumb. And those words hit me like an arrow in the heart and it was important for me to go home with a gut check that night. I don't remember a lot of everything else Dr. Rhodes said, but those words rung true. Because I had to ask myself over and over again, Jay, is that the truth? When you study theology, are you not living in a, in a state of perpetual blown-mindedness? And I know that's not a word. But I looked at Webster's and they told me it was stupid. So they won't be adding it anytime soon. But that's the truth. When you study the Bible, when you dig into the deep things of God, the fact that he has a heart for us, think about your walk with Christ, honestly now. And honestly, think about five rotten things you've done in the last six months. Just five 
rotten all out, like, man, woo, that was some dirty dog, gnarly stuff right there. Just think of it. The Lord Jesus Christ bled for all of it. Every single sin that you have committed, ever shall commit future or are presently entangled in today. All of our sin was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. That's the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is sufficient to meet our every single need. And you know, Pastor Chris and I really seriously, we did. We realistically took a lot of time before going into this and figuring, is this a good endeavor for all of us to go down? So I want you to see what we're going to be studying for the next several weeks so that you're not blown away. Today we're going to look at two. I don't know how I'm going to do two, but I'm going to cover two amazing aspects and attributes of God. We're going to look at God's unity and what flows out of unity is his triunity. Next week we'll look at human depravity. That'll be a ton of fun. Then we'll look at Christ's virgin birth, Jesus' sinlessness, Christ's humanity, the necessity of God's grace and our response in faith, Christ's atoning death, Jesus' bodily resurrection, Jesus' bodily ascension, Christ's intercession, and the second coming. Are you guys at all excited or is this not cool? Okay. And by the way, you know, like, I don't need your excitement. I like it, but it's not necessary. I know a lot of dull people, so it's okay. If you want to just be all dull about it, just be all dull on the outside and like all like happy clown on the inside. I'm good with that. So we're going to look at the unity of God. We'll look at the unity of God, and then we'll look at the triunity of God. Now, I am a theology professor. There are some things, no matter how much you want to dumb down, they can't be dumbed down. What I did is I attempted with all of my being and a lot of prayer and study time to make it so that we can grasp it. All right? Yes, I've avoided a lot of the deeper things. If you want deeper things, then sign up for an eight-week Northeast Biblical Institute class. We dig in much, much harder, two and a half hours every Tuesday night. And sometimes we're there well past 9.30. Just ask Pete Silverman. (laughs) This is going to be what I call bite-sized, digestible theology. And I want you to have that running theme. Think of it not negatively. Like, you know, you can do that. Who needs theology? Not like that. Think of it like this. Who needs theology? And then you, f- you finish it reflexively and you go, Lord, I do. Who needs theology? Lord, I do. Theology, theos and logia in Greek. God, a word about. That's exactly what theology means. It's a word about God. Well, I tell people all the time, if you tell me you were a lover and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot properly worship what you don't know. Otherwise, you could call Jesus a chair and just be wrong about who Jesus is. I ask people all the time in the church, and sometimes people get mad at me. I say, you love Jesus, which one? What? 
Which one? The Jehovah's Witnesses Jesus, the Mormons Jesus, Evangelical Christianity is Jesus. Don't tell me any of those three Jesus are the same. They are all very different. So you have to know what you believe. But importantly, you also have to know why you believe. So let's jump right in. When I talk about God's unity, we want to define it ever so quickly. When we talk about God's unity, what we're saying is there is only one God. Amen? Right. I know people find this hard to believe because we're Trinitarian in our theology, but we Christians are monotheists. We do not believe there are three gods. We believe there is one God who is three in his personhood, but essentially only one in his being. Just like I said, God is one in his essence, nature, or being. Now, You'll notice and wonder why if you're inquisitive. Why is being capitalized and underlined? And I'll tell you why. Because when we talk about being, we're so far removed from language and Latin that we sometimes have a lot of misnomers in our communication and in our English language. We talk all the time about human beings, right? Human being. Do you know that that's the dumbest definition ever? It's a horrible, horrible misnomer. It does not make sense. No one in this room is being, for being is pure actuality. Being itself is existence. You are human becomings, just as I am. Guess what? We become older every day. I know you young people feel really good right now, but I'm going to tell you, eventually all y'all are going to hit 30. And one day, you're going to sprain your ankle and go, psst, whack, sprained my ankle when I was 20. I put a Band-Aid on it, laughed it off, and ran a mile. Not a 30. But let me level with you. You know what comes after 30? You'd be where I am, 47, where you sprain your ankle, you fall on the ground, and you hit your life alert. I've fallen. I can't get up. You call that to your wife, Linda, I can't move. I sprained my ankle. What'd you do? I stubbed my toe on the bedpost. Man, we are, we are becoming something. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, it is becoming old. And a lot of good things come with it. But none of us are human beings. It's a misnomer. It's a bad terminology. We should be human becomings. Because we have the potency to change and check it. And then we change. God has no potency to change. He is pure actuality or he is pure being. Just like he says in Exodus 3.14. Moses said, and who shall I say is sending me? I am that I am that I am that I am that I am is what it means in Hebrew. You can keep parsing that out. It is a statement of pure actuality, being. God's unity is distinguished from a lot of other world religious views, like polytheism. Polytheism teaches that there are many equal gods, but the problem is, is they're all finite. I always ask someone, if your God has a beginning, right? Because that's what it is to be finite. If your God has a beginning, my next question to you is, so who is really God who brought your God into existence? 
And that's always the problem you'll have with finite gods. Anything that is finite begins to exist. Anything which begins to exist needs a first cause. That's called the law of causality. And it's really hard to refute. It does not apply to God because there is never a time when God has not existed. He has always existed. And everything in this created space-time-matter universe finds its existence and source in him. That's why God and God alone can say, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending. That's why. So polytheism fails us. Many equal gods, but all are finite. So then there's a greater force at force. There's someone greater than these gods. Polytheism fails. Henotheism. Henotheism is just a very fancy form of polytheism, like the Greek pantheon. Right? You had one chief god or one superior god amongst several other lesser gods. If you look at the Olympians, Zeus was the chief or king of the gods, and all the other gods of Olympus were subservient to him. But the truth of the matter is he was only slightly better and still thought to be finite. Because if you remember your Greek mythology, the Olympians, the Olympians defeated who to become the gods? They defeated their own parents, the Titans. So again, this is, this is just finite. This is a bunch of finite gods. Or what we call tritheism. That's three equal but separate gods. Not a triune god who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but a, again, a three different beings all being called God, and yet each one is succinct and distinct. This is the God of Mormonism. If you remember Mormonism, Joseph Smith claims that one day while seeking God and praying in the woods of Palmyra, New York, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ simultaneously both appeared to him. Now, I could go into the theological intricacies about that for about an hour and a half and bore every one of you to death. But I can tell you this much. If Moses walked with God and received the law on, on the mountain with God and was there for 40 days, and at one point in the wilderness wanderings, he tells Yahweh, I want to see your face. And what does God say? Moses, you see my face, you'll drop dead. I'll, hedge, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you can see my backside. There's something like my afterglow. And that lit Moses' face square red, so lit up he had to start wearing a veil because he was freaking the other Israelites out. He got some serious, serious God sunburn as, as the Lord passed by. Now you're gonna tell me Joseph Smith, who everyone knows was like half a joker and always trying to calm people out of things, is in the woods praying, and now all of a sudden, Almighty God the Father and Jesus show up, and he was not smoked. He was okay with it. Very, 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 very hard to believe, which is why I call it unbelievable. So when we talk about God's unity, it is distinct and different, and yet extremely closely related to God's triunity. But we have to realize that. We worship one God in three, the three in one. And I know you're going to say, give me some great examples. I can't. And I'll tell you why. Because our finite human minds can't understand 
God's infinite being and holiness. What we can do is accept by faith that the triune God who revealed himself to us gave us great information about who he is and exactly what he's like. God would never lie to us. Why would he lie to us? Well, when he tells us distinctly that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is telling us something about his nature that although hard to understand for us from a human aspect is still the truth. So what about the biblical basis for God's unity? Well, I would say it's the very beginning of the Bible. First place. And when people come to me and say, what's the first book of the Bible I should read? I'm a new Christian. I don't say the gospel of John like most pastors. I say you should start in the beginning of the book as if you were reading a novel. First book of the Bible is Genesis. Start in Genesis. So you can see the greatest miracle of all. God speaking and breathing everything into existence. Once you can understand that supernatural miracle, that work of God, you can start to understand some of the other miracles he is doing. But it clearly says, in the beginning, God. There is one God, and he is the one who started it all. And there is a hint of his triunity in his name Elohim, which in Hebrew is plural. We'll get to it later, I promise. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3 said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, God isn't saying, look, there's a bunch of other gods, and compared to me, they're not all that hot, so don't go after them. What God is really telling the Israelites is that there is no other God besides me. There is none. Bowing down to a little tin God who has eyes but cannot see, a mouth but cannot speak, ears that cannot hear. Why would you pray to a little tin God? Brothers and sisters, do you really think a little tin God is ever going to satisfy you? Be there for you? Work miracles for you? Never. Because a little tin God is no God. The great Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is the unique oneness of the God of Israel. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 said, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, I am the Lord. And apart from me there is no Savior. God is telling us clearly. There are no other gods. When you run after other gods, you're running after nothing. You're running after idols. You might even be worshiping demons and not know it. Don't run after other gods. Walk with the true God. And you know, that's what God is inviting us into. That is the fact of covenantal love. God is saying, come in, come in, come into the covenant, all right? Come in, come in by faith, and I'll keep you here. That's covenantal love. Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with your soul and your strength. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have you understood yet that that's basically all of the law and prophets? If you look at the 10 commandments, and I encourage you later, go look at them in Exodus 20. First, the first tablet is all about your devotion and wholehearted worship of almighty God. Loving God. And ready? Tablet number two is all about not sinning against your brothers and sisters who are created themselves in God's image. It's loving people. Now let me show you where people screw it up. They want to love people more than they love God. And they've got the commandments chronologically backwards. You need to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second one that is like it, Jesus said, I think he's trying to show us is so much easier. When you have your vertical relationship with God properly aligned, ready? Boom. Then everything that we're so concerned about here on the horizontal will be so much easier to manage. But if you mix up the analogy, if you flip it around and you're so worried about your friends and you're so worried about earthly relationships, you might forget about the most important relationship you could ever have. Don't put more focus on the horizontal and put the most important relationship with God on hold. All right? The vertical is more important than the horizontal. When the vertical is aligned, everything else will fall into place. Loving God and loving people. It's what the entire law is about. All of it. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God. Just one. One God. Ephesians 4, 6, there is one God and Father of us all. James 2, 19, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament said, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You see, the demons are already sunk, so to speak. The goose is cooked. There is no intermediary for angels. They stood in God's presence. They made their call. They made their choice. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an intermediary. We have a savior. Jesus stands in the gap for us. You see, we can believe that God is one and not tremble. We can do something the demons can't do. We can rejoice. 1 Corinthians 4 Sorry, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. The Apostle Paul said, We know that an idol is nothing and has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist. There is only one God. This, again, just is expounding upon the unity of God. And this is something that, just so you know, the early church believed, defended, and wrote upon. Here's an early, early edition of the Apostles' Creed, probably written most early sometime between AD 190 and 200 
maybe as late as 225. And then it was developed and added upon, and then you finally get a much later rendition. But this is one of the earliest editions of the Apostles' Creed, which states, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. You see a very early conviction in the church that Jesus is again, not just the son of God in some weird earthly fashion. No, there's something very different. You see, theologically, Jesus possesses what we would call eternal sonship. Jesus has always been the son of God. Always. At a point in human time, he incarnated. But he was at the beginning with the father. It says so in the scriptures. Go read the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Clear as day. But look at what happens by the Council of Nicaea in 8325. This is the Nicene Creed, which I think is ever so much more clear, as you can see that Christians were starting to study the Bible more and give more credence to, again, academic study. And by the way, if you didn't know it, we call them creeds because in Latin it starts with credo. Credo is Latin for I believe. So now you know why all the creeds start with I believe or we believe. That's what credo means. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. Real quick, do you think there was any doubt at the Council of Nicaea about Jesus's identity? None. Just none. So when you study all the early Christian creeds, they come to a conclusion about God's unity. There is one God. He is the true God. He is the creator of all else. He is of one substance, that is nature. He is only one being, one entity. He is the almighty God. So you're thinking, why can there only be one God? And there's a lot of reasons. I call most of these theological math. Not about you, but I stunk at math in school. But I can do Bible math a lot better. There can only be one God because there can only be one ultimate all right? You see, by definition, there can be nothing beyond an ultimate. The ultimate is in a class by itself. We talked about God being holy. We cry out to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's holiness is grounded in his holy otherness. He is the ultimate. And there is nothing beyond an ultimate, nothing greater than an ultimate, the ultimate sits in a class of one by itself. Hence, there is only one ultimate, our great God. Only one ultimate. Also speaking about mathematical Bible, Bible math here, there can only be one perfect being. 
there can only be one perfect being. If there were two, they would have to differ in some way. Otherwise, you would again. You'd have a contradiction here. You can only have one perfect being. If you had two, there would be some kind of difference. To differ would have the problem of one having a perfection that the other did not have. But the one that lacked that perfection would not be absolutely perfect. So if you have a difference in classifications, you again will only end up having one absolutely perfect being. Two perfect beings would cancel each other out. It would be like a stalemate in chess. Because you can only have one infinite being. If there were two, they could not be the same in their being. Two infinite beings would be the very same kind of being. Hence, again, they would cancel themselves out. And infinity is that funny kind of thing. When you start thinking about it, it is a mind-blowing thing. That which is infinite is beyond limitation. Real quick, who's very good in math? What's half of infinity? Infinity. What's 20% of infinity? Infinity. What's one thousandth of infinity? Infinity. Infinity, mathematically speaking, cannot be divided or parsed. It cannot be. Now, there can be a different kind of being because that becomes a philosophic argument in Greece thousands of years ago. There cannot be more than one kind of being. Incorrect. There can be a different order of being. God who is without beginning or end, who is infinite in his being, can create in his own image finite beings. But that's a being of a different order. So there is nothing to cancel out. There can only be one infinite being. I like what Albert Einstein said. He said there was only one mind behind all of it. He said the harmony of all natural law reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. In his book, Herein Show Me God, page 66. All natural law. When you look at the universe in which we live, brothers and sisters, and do yourself a favor, get out of Middlesex County once in a while so that you can see the stars. They exist. They're hard to see here with all the light pollution. But, you know, Pennsylvania and North Jersey is a quick car ride away. Go out there, and if you really want to feel a sense of awe and amazement, Sit in a dark field at night and start counting stars. Seriously, do this. I want you to do this. Start counting stars. Start counting them. It says clearly in the Old Testament that God has called each one of them by name. That's the kind of God we have. So let's draw some conclusions on God's unity. There is absolutely only one true God. One in essence, his substance, being, and nature. Personally, the amazing thing about God is that the Son joined himself to humanity forever. You ever read the end of Revelation? Jesus comes back riding a what? A horse. A white horse. Revelation 19. Well, this is perfectly in line with theology. He was visibly 
taken from out of the apostle's sight. He ascended up into the clouds back to the right hand of the Father. To the point where all of his disciples in Acts 1.8 are standing there with their jaw on the Judean floor, staring up. Two angels finally show up and say, men of Galilee, what are you staring into the clouds for? This same Jesus will return in the very same manner. That's visibly, physically, for the eye to see and for us to behold. That's amazing. You see, he is a spirit beyond the whole universe and yet one who acts intimately in his creation. He is the creator of all things. Such vast beauty in this universe. He is holy, true, light, eternal, forgiving, judge of all, glorious, miracle-working, and he alone is worthy of our worship because all other gods are merely false gods. There is but one God, and he alone is worthy of all praise. Which brings me to the triunity of God. This is where we can unpack a little more. It's not only necessary, but I think that the Trinity is reasonable. So let's define this. Unity means there are not two or more gods, right? We talked about unity. We know there is one God. But when we talk about that, we have to talk about the fact that there is also simplicity in God. And when you say this, people get bugged out. They're like, well, you just, bro, you can't start calling God simple. You're not understanding what that means. When we say God is a simple being, what we mean is that he's not comprised of parts. I use the very simple analogy with my children. God is not made of Legos, okay? It's not that there are many pieces of God, for if there were many pieces of God, parts of him could be lost. Well, there aren't pieces in God. God is a pure spirit. So in theological language, he is everywhere present at the same time because in his nature, he is a simple being. Believe it or not, we're actually what we would call complex beings. You know, you could live without a kidney. I'm not saying sell one on the black market and make 10 grand, but you could do it. You know, I've almost lost this pinky three times in work-related accidents. I'm pretty sure I'd still have a hand if I didn't have a pinky. God's not like that. Try unity, not try unity, all right? Not like the Mormonism, which would be tritheism. When we talk about triunity, we're talking that there are three distinct persons in the one true God. Now, Jesus is not the Father, just as the Father is not the Spirit, just as the Spirit is not the Son, but they're all, in their essence, they're all God. Now you think, how in the world can you get around that? Well, God is a three-person being in the way that we as human beings are only single-person beings. There's not one more person than you. When someone asks you to dinner, you show up alone because you are a single-person being. In your essence, as well as in your form, you are truly only one. God in his essence is one, but in his personhood is three. Now, I don't know what a three-person being looks like, but I'm telling you, that's who our God is. 
And there's all kinds of horrible examples that everyone thinks is so great for the Trinity. If I hear one more horrible explanation, I'm just going to refute someone gently. I don't know. You know? I have people all the time, Pastor Jay, I got this great analogy. The Trinity is like an egg. Because like, there's a shell, and there's a yolk, and there's a white. And I'm like, you just confess the heresy of partialism. Because I want you to know you can separate the shell from a white, from a yolk on an egg, can't you? Well, yeah. Okay. It's called partialism. God's not like an egg. All right? This is a terrible analogy. Don't say that. Well, God's like water. Oh, you mean one elemental thing that can take three different forms? H2O? At 32 degrees at sea level, it's solid as ice. And then if you heat it to 212 degrees at sea level, it'll turn into vapor as steam. And then if you let it condense under 212, it'll go to liquid, another form. That's called modalism. God's not like that either. There are not a lot of good human analogies for God. Want to know why? Because he's beyond us. He's beyond our goofy analogies, so we think we can make it smart and figure we figured out something that is residing in the heavens. We're not going to figure it out. There's only a couple decent analogies. My favorite one is God is, listen when I say like, because that's what I mean. We can liken God to a triangle. There are three different corners, but only one geometric figure. If you take any angle off of a triangle, you'll get another geometric shape. You get a trapezoid. It's not going to be a triangle anymore. You have to have all distinct corners. It is one geometric shape with three distinct individual corners. That's about as close as I think we can get with human understanding. When you run into your Muslim friends who say, you Christians really don't Worship one God, you, you really worship three gods, right? You know, because one plus one plus one equals three. Ha-ha! You know, don't feel like you got ha-ha'd, all right? Just tell them you're using the wrong kind of math. Because the last time I checked, one times one times one still equals one. So don't add. Try multiplying things. So what is our biblical basis for triunity? Well, Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us clear as day, there is only one God. There are three persons in the Bible who are all called God. The Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God. All three are distinct persons. The Father is referred to as a person. The Son is referred to as a person, as is the Holy Spirit, hence There are three distinct persons in one God, what we would refer to as the Holy Trinity. Now, let's walk it out and put legs to our faith. Our Father who art in heaven, Matthew 6, 9. Clear as day. Our Father who art in heaven, he's referred to. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus yielded up his spirit. Remember, the Romans did not take Jesus' life for him. That's all. Horrible historical inaccuracy. Jesus surrendered his spirit to the Father. They went and they broke the other two insurrectionists, the two other criminals' legs, so that they would die quickly. And when they went over to Jesus, he was already dead, for he had yielded up his spirit. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Romans 1.7 says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Galatians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So clearly this is just a tiny little fragment of scriptures where God is distinctly referred to as God is the Father. The Father, God the Father. So we can say that and not sound like a bunch of heretics. We can say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nothing wrong with that. Because also the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, is called God in the scriptures. He claimed to be the I am of Exodus 3.14. All right? He claimed to be that. In John 8.58, the most clear, outright, you know, way Jesus could identify himself as divine. And I can tell you, go read John 8, 58 and see how the Pharisees reacted if you want to see what they thought. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, in Greek, ego eimi, I, I am. Or to totally clarify in English, I am the I am. And they all picked up rocks to kill him. Because he being a man made himself equal with God. All the cults try and jump six ways sideways around it. There's no way around it. Now, I didn't say you had to walk out here rejoicing and praising the Lord Jesus Christ as God incarnate. But I'm telling you right now, Jesus said he was God on earth. So the next time someone gives you a goofy internet argument, because that's what I call them. Well, I was, you know, I did some studying. I went to like, you know, three different websites and just cut and paste into this document. Now I look like a theological genius. Ask that person a fourth question and watch how dumb they really look. I didn't say how dumb they were. I said how dumb they look. No. Jesus claimed to be God. Clear as day. He forgave sins, which is something that only God can, can, can do. Mark 2, 5 through 7 Remember the story, the paralytic man who was actually let down through the roof of Peter's house? Which I always tell people, everyone misses that. I mean, they broke Peter's roof to get this guy to Jesus. I mean, you understand how desperate people were to see Jesus in his day 2,000 years ago? They broke a guy's roof to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Let me tell you something. That's faith. If, you didn't, if you've never seen that in the friends of the paralyzed man, they had faith, real faith. He walks by this man and he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes replied, who can forgive sin but God alone? Do you remember what Jesus did to follow that up? He spun around and said, so that you know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto you, arise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man who was paralyzed for many years picked up his bed and went home. Jesus backed that whole statement right up. And I tell people clear as day, that man's sins were forgiven. You think Jesus doesn't have power on earth to forgive sins? He would have sinned again, don't get me wrong. But he forgave that man's sins, which Jesus was clearly more concerned with. And when the Pharisees made an issue out of it, it became a public teaching moment. So that you know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, Pick up your bed and go home. 
And that just backed up that Jesus was who he said he was, God. He claimed he should be honored just as the Father is honored. That's a heavy claim. John 5, 23, all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Who is worthy of worship? Biblically speaking, who is worthy of worship? Is it on, isn't it only God, right? Only God, which means that's right. Stop worshiping your relationships and your grades and every other goofy thing. Don't make me say it. Stop worshiping your boyfriend. He's not that great. I know him. Only worship God. All right? Nothing else is worthy of worship. You can like, you can say they're swell, you know, a lot of things. No one is worthy of worship other than God. Brothers and sisters, we need to preach that to ourselves on a pretty regular basis or we'll stop paying homage to the one who is due all worship, and there's a great chance we'll start worshiping a lot of other things. But this is what's amazing. Jesus received worship 10 times in the Gospels. 10 times. The mother of James and John in Matthew 20, 20 came, and prostokaneod, they laid themselves out prostrate and worshiped Jesus. To lay down at his feet, they worshiped him. The Gerasian demoniac, after Jesus cast demons out of him in Mark 5, 6, worshipped Jesus. A blind man in John 9, 38, worshipped Christ after he was healed. Thomas the twin, after saying something as bold as, I'm not going to believe until I put my hand in his side. When Jesus shows up again in John 20, 28, Jesus gently comes over and says, come here, Thomas. Put your finger here. Give me your hand. Put it in my side. Stop being disbelieving and start believing. And Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. A woman at the tomb after Jesus' resurrection worshipped him in Matthew 28, 9. A Canaanite woman whose daughter was healed worshipped Jesus in Matthew 15, 25. His disciples worshiped him in Matthew 14, 33. He healed a bunch of lepers. One came back and wasn't only thankful, but he again bowed himself to the ground in Christ's presence. He worshiped him. A rich young ruler came and bowed himself before Christ, dealt all the way down and showed him worship. And then shortly before the Lord Jesus was taken from his disciples, all of them in one accord in Matthew 2818, all together, worship him. I crack up when people say, you know, there's not a lot of evidence in the New Testament that Jesus ever said he was God. Excuse me? How much have you actually read of it? It's not a terribly large book, by the way. I mean, the Old Testament is 77.3% of the Bible. So it'll take you much longer to read that. The New Testament, by comparison, is kind of slender. No. Jesus is God. And it's clear. There's nothing cryptic. It's not hidden. The Holy Spirit is God. Here's the one where everyone wants to go, well, no, he is. He has the names of God. He is called God in 1 Corinthians 3.16. 
and he's called Kyrios. He's called Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.17. He's called God in Acts 5, 3, and 4. When Ananias and Sapphira pretty much sold a piece of property and then kept a little bit of profit for themselves and then hypocritically laid everything out at the apostles' feet and said, here's all the proceeds. Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. He performs the acts of God. He's there in Genesis 1-2. The spirit of Yahweh was hovering over the face of the deep. That means the Holy Spirit is the co-creator of the universe with the Father and the Son. He is there redeeming in Ephesians 4.30, doing miracles in Hebrews 2.4, and giving supernatural gifts unto men and women, unto believers in 1 Corinthians 12.4-11. As he wills. He is associated with God in benedictions. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The Spirit is not the essence of God, guys. All right? I know some people try to teach that. Well, the, you ever try getting personal with a, a force or an essence? When's the last time you kissed an electrical socket? It might be a shocking experience, but I don't think it's really all that personal. It's as clear as in Ephesians that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a real quick question. Is it possible to grieve someone who doesn't love you? No, it's impossible. You could do something extremely egregious, and if someone doesn't give a rip about you and could care less about you, you haven't done anything. The last time I checked, it's impossible to grieve an impersonal force. We're admonished by Paul not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And that is because the Holy Spirit, whom is God, intimately loves you and is concerned about you. And our actions in this world can grieve him. What about personhood? Because we said that there are three distinct persons in the one triune God. Well, I can tell you this much. In the Bible, the Father is a person, the Son is a person, and yes, the Spirit is a person. And the reason we kind of mess this whole thing up is because we forget what personhood is all about. The three distinct elements, the personal characteristics that give one personhood. All right? It's a mind, emotions, and a will. And Aquinas made this argument in the 1500s, but he was still right. One is a person if you have a mind, emotions, and a will. This is one of the very huge reasons that we say animals are not people. Because they're not. And I know I get people really mad, but they say that you're treating that animal inhumanely. We eat animals on a regular basis in this country. You can't treat an animal inhumanely because they're not human. You can only treat humans inhumanely. I hate to get like all grammar Nazi here, but it's in the word. I, I, and I know it, everyone gets mad. Pastor Jay, you don't like animals. I got a cat at home, I think he's awesome, okay? And I hear one more person say that he's happy to see me, he's not. He knows that I'll give him a treat if he does his little trick. You see, he's well-trained. 
and he's a mooch. He loves to eat. The fat little cat is what he really is. He's been conditioned. Animals do not have a will. We all know in this room they have instincts and they follow them. Brothers and sisters, you are not an animal. Jesus Christ said, men and women will give an answer for every idle word they ever speak. You know what that means? That means everything you do, you do of your own free will, of your own volition. It's part of your personhood. It's part of being a free will agent. It's part of being created in the image of almighty God. A lot of amazing ways. But these are the big three. A mind, emotions, and a will. That's what a person is. One who can think, choose, and feel. And the father most certainly is a person. He has a mind, Matthew 6, 32. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Well, of course he does. Matthew 6, 10. Jesus said, Father, your will be done. That means that God the Father can choose. He most certainly did. He chose to create. No one forced his hand. No one forces God's hand. And of course, God the Father can feel. In Genesis 6, 6, it says, it grieved him that he had made man on earth because he looked around and it said, the intents and thoughts of all mankind was nothing but evil constantly. And that grieved God because God has emotions. He does. What about Christ? Does it supply? Jesus has a mind. In John 2, 25, it says, he knew what was in a man, and so he did not commit himself to some. That's right. That's an amazing mind that knows. He can also choose. In John 10, 18, it says, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. That's choice. And we know Jesus has emotions. We know that he feels. John eleven thirty five, 35, shortest verse in the entire Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. At the tomb of a close friend, Lazarus of Bethany. What about the spirit? The spirit himself is also absolutely without fail a person. He has a mind, John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit will teach you. Forces do not instruct and teach. They just don't. He can choose, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He gives gifts as he wills. Now, I know a lot of Christians like to think that they choose their own spiritual gift. Well, you don't. It has been bequeathed to you. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift as he sees fit. You know what we really need to do as believers? Determine what it is and exercise it and walk in it. And of course, the Holy Spirit can feel. Ephesians 4.30, I made reference to it before. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, A, because he is a person, B, because he loves you. And if he didn't love you, you could not possibly grieve him. How about the personal pronoun, ikenos in Greek, he? John 16, verses 13 and 14 says, he. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me and he shall take of mine and will disclose it to you. 
You don't use personal pronouns of its. And I hear Christians on a regular basis say that. And I always correct them very gently. Ooh, you would not like that if someone referred to you as an it. That's very impersonal. Personal pronouns are used of personal beings. He. What's amazing about this is that we see God's triunity clear as day in scripture. All three people exist in the triune God at the same time. All you have to do is go to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. All present at the same time. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Clear as day. The father's voice heard from heaven, the Holy Spirit as or like a dove coming down and alighting upon the eternal son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All three simultaneously there, father, son, and Holy Ghost. Hence, all three distinct persons in one God, the Trinity. So what should our response be? And I know you probably would just love me to shut up now and we should all eat more pizza. And I agree with you and we can do that. But I wanna share just two more minutes with you because I think we can have a, a broad array of responses. But one is that this is a God who is true unto himself, a God who cannot change, a God who cannot lie, a God who is always constant, always the same, never capricious, never wandering. And that, that really means that he is trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, the Lord wants you to trust him because there's no one trustworthy like him. Secondly, since this God does not change, his promises are sure and never fail. When you read something in the word of God, it is the truth. When God makes a promise to Abraham, it comes to pass. When God speaks truth to his church, it is for his church of all times, not just apostolic times 2,000 years removed from us. For today, you guys are part of the New Testament continuing story. Did you ever do that? Has it ever, have you ever thought about that? The word of God is not truly closed in a certain sense. Jesus went back to the right hand of the Father 2,000 years ago where he now ever lives to make intercession for you and he's coming back. The seven thunders have not yet uttered their voice in the book of Revelation. And when John goes to write it, you know what he's told by an angel? Seal it up. Ha ha, don't tell anybody. I can't wait to find out what the seven thunders say. You won't find it in Revelation. It just says that it was sealed. We are in a living, breathing community with one another and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of the continuing story, which is so awesome. The same gospel that Jesus spoke to his disciples, go into all the world and teaching them. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Did you ever see the Trinitarian oneness 
in baptism, that's the formula. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. We get to be part of that, brothers and sisters. And that's exciting. He's also a personal God. One we can know and enjoy in active fellowship with. One who wants intimacy with us. Listen to these last three verses. Isaiah 57, starting with verse 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is constantly in his holy hill and on his exalted throne. And yet he also dwells with the lowly of heart. God wants intimacy with us. He wants fellowship. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered, he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Didn't I just tell you a second ago that God makes promises and he never breaks them? That's a promise that Jesus is never gonna leave you nor forsake you, ever. And 1 John chapter 1, verses two through four, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which the Father has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You see, Trinity is the root of unity. God in and of himself is a working fellowship. I know you probably never thought of it that way. But for love to really work, you need more than two. Because everyone says, well, you know, you really need two. No, you don't. You need three things. You need three things for love to work. I don't care if it's familial love. I don't care if it's romantic love. I don't care if it's love for, you know, your children. Listen to me. Love takes three things. A lover, a beloved one to receive, and the spirit of love flowing between the two of them. Those three things are absolutely necessary. And if you look at this world, God's triunity is around us. How many primary colors are there? Three and only three. What are the elements of time? Past, present, and future. How do we measure things? Length, width, height. That's triunity. It's triunity everywhere. Everywhere. I think God was trying to show us in nature something that he knew we'd have a hard time getting our heads around. But again, I'll leave you with this. If you can figure everything out about God, then you'd be God. And none of us are. So look, there's no questions for a small group tonight. I'm going to invite Pete back up here real quick. We're going to close out with some worship. And then I want you guys just to do this. I want everyone to just enjoy an extended period of love and fellowship. Look, if you got something heavy on your heart, make your own little small group somewhere. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you need advice, 
All of our gradient leaders are here. We love you guys. We're here for you. If you just are lacking and just need to just cut loose and just have some good fellowship, have fellowship. And please, for the love of everything holy and sacred, eat some more pizza. And why don't we all stand together for worship? We were waiting without hope, without life Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To reveal the King And with faith you came the word Sorry I am so sorry, guys. My mind is distracted. Let's do this again, all right? We know the first half of the verse. Let's, let's go. Let's go.